Ladies and gentlemen, this is your captain speaking. This is Open Mike Eagle, and welcome to season three of What Had Happened Was. For followers of this podcast, what we do is is uh myself. I sit down and talk to a legend in hip-hop. Very fortunate to be in a position to be able to ask these people questions about their legacy and their catalog. We unpack it over the course of a season, and by gosh, do we have a season for you. Dante started when hip-hop started. He was there from the beginning. So in this first episode, you'll hear about him noticing the burgeoning hip-hop scene in New York and some of the places he saw some of the earliest acts and and how quick he was to get into the game and, and want to be invested in that culture and some of his earliest relationships and the moves he made dealing with the Beastie Boys, seeing Run DMC working at Rush Productions with Lior Cohen and working with groups like Public Enemy. It's a hell of a journey, and it's just the start of a season where we talk about groups like Pete Rock and C.L. Smooth, Dell the Funky Homo Zapien, KMD featuring MF Doom, Leaders of the New School featuring Buster Rhymes, De La Soul, Queen Latifah, Brand Nubian, and more. I mean, he eventually ends up winning a Grammy with Everlast and Carlos Santana. We got quite a lot of ground to cover. Thank you for joining us. Here, what had happened was on the Stony Island Audio podcast network that's curated by me and features all sorts of shows if you like this kind of conversation check out the other shows on stony island audio i'm open mike eagle speaking with dante ross we're going to cover the beginnings of hip-hop and his early life in new york city welcome in this is open mike eagle this is season three of what had happened was y'all we got another very special guest with us he needs no introduction, but... If you ever read the line of notes on classics from all kind of folks, you know who knew where to find the dope. It's Dante serving stories like entrees. I guess for season three, it's a giant like Andre. Mr. No Shit Taker, the third base hit maker. Eganar innovator, the ODB motivator. He signed a roster full of heavy hitters. Office messenger, the Grammy winner. Motherfucker Dante Rose. In the 90s, you would call him the plug. Signing act after dope act. He saw in the clubs as Pete, CL leaders, Dale, and all the above. If you don't know him, don't call him a scrub. It's what it happened was. Check, check, check. What up, everybody? This is Open Mike Eagle, and uh, I am bringing to you uh, the first episode of a brand new season of What It Happened Was. This is a fake first episode, though, because we really taped a real one that was great. And then because of technology, <laughs> we ended up having to do it again. Um, we have a very esteemed guest, somebody who is a legend within hip-hop, somebody who he wouldn't say it, but I would say is, is responsible for um, almost an entire era of uh, classic artists and sounds being introduced you know, into the world. Um, it's the one and only Mr. Dante Ross. What's going on, Mike? How are you? Man, I'm chilling. I'm chilling, man. Just uh, excited to dig in with you and, uh, and and start unpacking the legacy some, man. How you okay. feeling? I'm good, man. A little tired, but other than that, I'm good. I just got up a little early today. Same here, brother. Same here. Early rising. Speaking of early, man, we're going to start at the beginning. But even before that, though, I mean, looking over your career, you're somebody who's been in and around the music business for almost 40 years, and it seems like you have Sounds had... Sounds crazy. Don't it? <laughs> it seems like you have had every job there is to have, except really being like the front and center artist. Like, that was never, in, in anything that I could see, that was never really your position. I was curious, were you ever interested in having a career as an artist? Not particularly. I um, I was fascinated by people's names on the back of records. Hmm. So people like Jerry Wexler and and Steve Cropper, though he was a musician, and and people of that nature like um, Barry Gordy, that always Creed Taylor. Like it was always interesting to me. I always wanted to know who those guys were—the ghost behind the machine. Hmm. So so and and I I played a little guitar as a kid. I wasn't particularly gifted. I could play drums a little bit, um, and I, I was always maybe um, a little too shy to want to be up front and center. 
for whatever reasons. I think um, I just didn't have the confidence to try and do it, which is funny because I saw people around me who had a lot of confidence and they might not have had that much talent. <laughs> and, and a few of those guys became famous. Um, so, so who knows? Maybe I made the wrong path. I mean, <laughs> as I got older, in my, my teen years, I was a little, um, I wasn't as uh, forthright and, and at, outspoken. I had, um, I don't want to say self-esteem issues, but but I was kind of a little, played the back a little more. Um, so, you know, it didn't really ever appeal to me. As I got older, I became more outspoken and, and um, some might even say charismatic at times. Hmm. Certainly not known as a shy person. No. <laughs> uh, and I, I don't want to say I was shy when I was young, but I'm, I'm minding my P's and Q's because when I grew up, cats got checked if they were out of line. So I, I don't really feel like getting checked. And you found yourself in what seems to be a lot of very lively environments where, where a check could come in, in, in any form. Um, you were 13 running around the punk scene in New York. How was, how was that even possible? <laughs> like what, what, was, what was life like that allowed you to have that much freedom to, to run free in the city at that time? I mean, I didn't have a lot of parental guidance, to be honest. My, my mom was very liberal and, and also was dealing with her own, her own issues. Um, and so, you know, there wasn't a lot of parental guidance within my house. So I kind of did what I wanted to do. I didn't really like... You know, people always say, you know, I was outside. Like, I was outside from when I was, like, 11, 12 years old. Like, I was out the house, like, doing shit. So, you know, um, and I, I gravitated towards hanging out with older kids pretty young. And that's another reason why I probably didn't didn't really, um, I didn't talk too much shit till I got older because I was young and older dudes would check you if you did. So, you know, I was around. And, and also, New York was a different place then. It was relatively lawless. The drinking age was 18. Mm-hmm. And I think the drinking age was if you were taller than a bar, you could probably go in a bar and get a drink. <laughs> um, you know, and I grew up in the East Village, which was a pretty scandalous little area. Um, kind of, how can I say, um, lawless. And it's where punk rock happened. And it, it's ironic in a sense because it's also a Puerto Rican neighborhood. It's the hood. There's two big hoods in Manhattan, really. And that's Harlem and the Lower East Side. There's other hoods, but those are the big ones. So within this Latin kind of hood, punk rock emerges. And it was like the East Village and the Lower East Side, which are right next to each other, but a little different. So the alphabets is when it becomes the Lower East Side. And, and before it gets to Avenue A, it's, a, it's, I mean, it's the East Village. So, I mean, I grew up in a, a really crazy, somewhat dangerous, yet very artistic environment. So, you know, man, I was out of the crib hanging out, whether it was a schoolyard or going, going to see bands as young as 13, 14 years old. So in that environment, that dangerous, lawless chaos, and, and you find yourself steeped in the punk scene, how do you ultimately end up finding hip-hop? How does hip-hop find you? So, so hip-hop was, all for as long as I can remember, punk rock, new wave, and even hardcore, the adjacent an adjacent culture that was cool. And one thing about punk rock was, while punk rock wanted to um, destroy the Led Zeppelins of the world, black music always had a past. Rick mm. James in his leather pants and his crazy shit doing Super Freak was still cool to punk rockers, right? So there was a, there's a, how can I say an unspoken cool that is attached to black culture and black music. So it was never alien from any punk rock scene that I was involved in. And we always, like in England, they listen to dub music. Um, and in America, certainly we listen to some, some early dance hall and roots and culture stuff and even some dub stuff. But, but rap music was right there and we liked it. And whether it was starting with the Sugar Hill Gang Rapper's Delight in junior high school, I always liked rap music. I thought it was cool. You know, I, I like I, I liked that record a lot, and I liked a lot of those records in that time period, whether it was Apache or later uh, Super Rhyme. Yes, I'm one of a kind. I'm Super Rhymes, and I'd like to say hello. Or, or Dollar Bill. 
any of these records, the message, White Lines, um, these records all spoke to me and my friends. And it was not uncommon for us to go to a club like Danceteria and they play a lot of rap music along the New Wave records. Hmm. And, you know, the other thing was our favorite band growing up, the band we always went to see was the Bad Brains. So the Bad Brains were, you know, four black guys from Washington, D.C. So I think some of the walls that existed in other punk rock scenes did not exist in New York City, where I was. Because the apex of our scene was a, a black roster group that played the greatest hardcore music ever. So for us, I think some of the the lines and um, the lines and distinctions didn't exist. And, you know, I grew up on black music. Um, my sister loved black music. My mom loved Bill Withers and James Brown and Aretha Franklin as my father loved jazz. So, you know, rap music, when it started to emerge, it just seemed logical that, that I would like it and lots of kids. And the other thing was punk rock took a turn towards what they call hardcore punk rock. And it, it got it got kind of out of borough-ish. And, and um, for lack of a better word, um, people who I didn't think were our intellectual equals started to show up at the scene. And it, hmm. it reminded me of stuff I was trying to get away from. Right. So I found punk rock because shit was dangerous where I was living. And it was like a way to find something else. It was like to have my own, to be part of our own subculture. And when our subculture was infiltrated by people who didn't have the same artistic sensibilities as us, it was time to find something else. And for a lot of us, I think that that new thing, that new religion we found was hip hop. Hmm. So it sounds like there was a lot of mutual respect and openness in the punk scene that you were a part of. There was. Of I, I, I would say that punk people were probably more open-minded and um, intrigued by early rap music and hip-hop culture than, than the inverse. You know, that the other thing is, look, we have Blondie who's reaching out to, to the world of hip-hop culture and acknowledging it. We have graffiti, which is the great, the great Equalizer, like connector, yeah. right? It like mm -hmm. you know, because graffiti was like white guys, black dudes, guys who were doing Black Sabbath cars on trains, but then dudes who was rapping, right? Right. So you know, and in a graffiti crew, there might be a big white dude from like Far Rockaway, and then your man who's from the projects in East New York, and we're in the same crew. So that's right. the other thing. And as graffiti becomes more uh, bonafidely a part of my life and becomes maybe more socially acceptable as a real art form. Um, you have this liberal, forward-thinking element in New York City, and, and I think probably globally, but particularly New York City, that embraces this stuff and sees the real artistry in it um, mm -hmm. and sees that, that, that trains are works of art when put in the hands of people like Lee and Futura and that the music, rap music, is akin, in a sense, to punk rock it's black do-it-yourself music with no instruments um but turntables right etc and, and what could be more punk rock than say fuck your instruments i got this shit right here right so right. i think that there was a logical connection between the two cultures back then at least it felt very logical to me and and look man all the forward-thinking kids who i was hanging out with and and we were multicultural. there was you know white asian spanish black female uh, lots of women around, you know, young women and and um, forward-thinking men. We we all gravitated towards this thing called hip hop because it was fun, man. You know, it was fun. It wasn't tough. It mm. was it was a lot of fun to it and almost an innocence. So it appealed to all of us. We we loved all those records and we all had we all you know made tapes for each other and had those records. And we at some point started going this to we went to the grill early on. Me and my friends like which would be like Mike D and these guys and. And the girls who were in Luscious Jackson were around and, and others. And um, we, we gravitated towards the Roxy when the party moved there. So, you know, I was, I was in the early wave of, you know, hip downtown kids who, who, who were touched by the culture of hip hop. And I would say hip hop was much like rock and roll, the most important youth culture since rock and roll. And I, I would think that its longevity says its import was probably 
more so than even punk rock. But, you know, you're a kid, you're looking for something that you want to call your own, and hip-hop fit the bill. And you don't just stop at where the cultures meet. As you really get exposed to hip-hop and fall in love with it, you start going to where hip-hop is and experiencing it there. Um, what was it like for you being white at that time? How was the culture of hip-hop uh, responding to people coming around that weren't from those neighborhoods? Well, well, to be clear, I wasn't really going to the Bronx like that, right? So I, I, I went to one of the early Zulu anniversaries, but but I wasn't necessarily going to, uh, you know, Bronx River and stuff like that. That that even predates me a little bit. So, you know, when I saw Bam, I saw him at the Roxy. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was, it was cool as cool as the other side of the pillow. It was... There was a lot of cultural exchange going on at that point. And, and I, I want to say that I first experienced that cultural exchange in the 70s with my parents and, and the people I grew up with. But then at the Fun Gallery a little later in the early 80s, when, you know, you have this hip, this graffiti gallery that has um, becomes super important. It shows all the, all the people who counted the most, whether it was John Michelle, Basquiat or, or Ramal Z or Keith Haring. Right. So you think about those those people um, and those artists or even Futura, you put them all in a pot and one guy's a Haitian guy from Brooklyn. One guy's, you know, a, a black Italian from Far Rockway, Ramal Z, who's a genius. Keith Herron's a gay guy from Pennsylvania and Futura's um, this mixed race cat from the Upper West Side. So it, it felt like that was the beginning of what I saw, a deep level of cultural exchange. And I'd say it, it happened at Danceteria and it happens at the Fun Gallery and it happens at Roxy, and, and that culminates in things like Def Jam, Russell and Rick Rubin becoming partners, bands like the Beastie Boys, or even Madonna, or Blondie doing Rapture, or Africa Bambata sampling Kraftwerk and working with Arthur Baker. All these things are cultural exchange, examples of cultural exchange and a cross-pollination that's happening naturally. So in these environments like the Roxy, not weird to see white, black people all doing Smurf together and dancing to them records. And, you know, Rocket was a huge pop record and the electro records had a new wave appeal. So I think that cultural exchange was completely accepted and embraced at that point in time. I think that it was like one of the last examples I can think of where it was totally the shit to do. It was this coolest, it was the coolest thing on the block. So speaking of Russell and Def Jam, you are quoted as saying that seeing Run DMC changed your life 100% what was the story of that so rap music what people don't know is as electro starts to wane a little bit the the cool white people fall by the wayside a little something and it's not as sexy and graffiti's not as cool as it was and breakdancing's corny now right it's getting corny Things are starting to change. It's on Burger King commercials and and shit is just getting weird. Like, you know, you have these movies breaking and breaking, breaking. It doesn't, doesn't feel as cool as it was. And and then you get this group run DMC. Um, you know, like there was electro style and then it was like problems of the world today. Dudes had their keyboards out and it was moving in the R&B direction a little bit, right? Rap mm-hmm. is getting musical. Run DMC takes that rule book or that playbook and throws it out the fucking window. They are akin to heavy metal or punk rock. It sounds antisocial. It is, as I always say, anti-music because it has no music. It just has like a stab and <laughs> thunderous drums and these guys who are yelling at you. So it felt like a natural progression of everything that me and my friends loved. And to see them, they looked, they were the first rap group to look like the audience. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you had these other dudes who were looking like a broke Rick James or Parliament. You know, they had the crazy, the crazy the leather, leather and, the spikes. Yeah, and all the crazy shit on nine, nine belts. And, you know, they look like <laughs> Prince or some shit. We, we, you know, hey, that's cool for you, but I can't dress like that. That's right. not, that's not going to work. Didn't and, feel um, accessible. I mean, you can't take the train <laughs> dressed like that. You're going to get beating. So, so especially if you're a white dude, you're really going to get it. <laughs> you know, there's those things that, like, 
you know, black people can pull off the white dudes can't pull off. Like Prince could dress like that. I can't dress like that. A little harder. You know, you know harder. <laughs> there's there's certain things, places <laughs> where I, I can't go. So, man, Run DMC, they look like the audience. They look like the the hard rock around the way. You know, mm-hmm. and and that was impressive. You know, you saw them. They they the demystification of the performer and the audience, much like punk rock. Right? There is no longer the wall there. And they're not aspiring to be Rick James. They're right. they're they're aspiring to be the, the baddest motherfucker on your block, and therefore they were. Where did you first see them? I saw them at Danceteria, which is, I believe, part of Russell's plan um, was to expose them downtown first to the more uh, taste making hmm. crowd, which is also steering more white than the Roxy. The obvious place would be to play the Roxy, but to play Danceteria says, oh, yeah, but watch. And I think that's that was always his thing. He was going to sell Run DMC to America on their own terms. And I think that that's where it started. The epicenter of cool was downtown white people, and they could spread the gospel of something in a, in a way that um, maybe black culture didn't at that time because it was a more segregated world we lived in. And you had artists that never crossed over. So Run DMC, I believe, was not built or engineered to, but very, very shrewdly marketed in a way that it it would at one point touch middle America. And it did. What was what was the feeling like in that room? I mean, it was one of the first times I've been at something where I knew it was the who's who of New York. Hmm. Madonna's there, Fat Five Freddy's there. Russell Simmons is there. Glenn O'Brien is there. You know, people who are somebodies are all there. And they're they're in that room, Futura 2000. And, you know, they're there in a room and you know you're about to... Well, it could go two ways before they go on. It's like everyone in the world's here. And this could be the greatest shit ever. It could be the end. And Mm. you could feel the electricity, though. It was electric. And you couldn't fit one more human being in that motherfucker. It was hot, and they they came off. They killed shit, and they only had two and a half songs. They had Chuck okay. MCs. They only have you know because rap music back then too. It was like a track act, so you, you know rap acts could do two or three shows a night when they were popping. Same with freestyle acts. So they they came in and they did um. Sucker MCs, it's like that. And they did a skit, which ends up later being Jam Master Jam. Were they the only rappers on the bill that night? Only rappers. Hmm. Only hmm. act on the bill. And Russell is there. Oh, yeah, he's clearly there. He might have been smoking dust. He was definitely there. <laughs> How does your, like, what, what is the sequence of events that happens from you seeing Run DMC and Russell being there to you working. So so I knew Russell from the Beasties. I knew him pretty early on, and he always liked me. Um, I had started to kind of come out of my shell, and I was a crazy kid, and and um, hard to believe it now, but I was a good-looking kid. The girls loved me. Like, I was like, I was like a baby model type kid, and, you know, I'd done, like, girls really liked me. Um, and I think that that also, <laughs> that made that intrigued Russell a little bit. Like, it's always like, you know, I'm always with a different girl and I was funny and I was like the Beastie Boys crazy friend who was always getting in trouble. So um, he he always liked me. And and though in actuality, Lior is the one who hired me. Um, mm. I, I kind of think I knew I wanted to be in the music business, but I didn't know what the hell I could do. And I saw the Beastie Boys getting famous. They were running around with Russell and Rick and and in all honesty, Rick was never that embraceable of me to, you know, he was never that cool to me. He became cooler with me later. And much respect, Rick was a huge inspiration to me. But Russell, I endeared myself somehow to Russell. And um, and Lior liked my girlfriend and was trying to hit <laughs> on her. And she wasn't hit, having it. But, and and I, I started clowning him and he liked it. And he mm. gave me a job. He's the one who hired me. Because of my friend, Captain Pissy. So Sean Karazoff was the Beastie Boys road manager and Leo's really good friend and my drinking partner. And he used to come and hang out with me all the time when I worked at this restaurant when he wasn't on the road. 
and we would go out and drink and raise hell. So we became really good friends. And because of Captain Pissy, I ended up being good friends with Lior and he gave me a job. Lior's first job was he was going to open a store called the Hip, the Hip Hop Shop. And I was going to help him uh, curate it, I guess. And we never ended up doing it. But but that led to me getting a job at at Rush as um, the office messenger. Ricky Powell went on tour with the Beasties and Sean had Lior slide me the gig. So you were you were really, really close with the Beastie Boys. I know that your first job in music was working with them, but you were actually really friends with those guys too. Oh yeah, we were friends from punk rock days. I mean, when I say me and my friends gravitated from the punk rock scene to loving hip hop, I'm talking about the Beastie Boys and the girls in Luscious Jackson and my various friends who, two of which ended up being my future production partners and just kids we knew. And I, I don't want to overstate my friendship with them because hmm. um, I don't, it's not like I hang out with them these days or haven't hung out with them for a really long time. But we did start out together and they opened the doors for me. And I have like eternal love for them because of this. And because they're good guys. They're just fucking good dudes. You know, I, I loved all, I, I love all of them, but you know, like MCA was fucking the funniest guy I've ever known in my entire life. One of the funniest people of all time. So, you know, those guys are all hilarious. They're good dudes. Where? I've always been fascinated by the Beastie Boys making a transition from rock to rap in terms of the music they were making. What do you remember about them making that transition as artists? It seemed natural. You know, my, my, my best friend, this is so ironic. My best friend was a guy named John Barry, and he was in the Beastie Boys. He was the guitar player. And in a way, the de facto leader of the band, kind of, he was... Um, he wrote a lot of songs. He was a fucking wild man. He is a crazy dude. He, you know, he he um, he looked like like John Lydon kind of. He was like the most ang- English looking dude who was not English at all. And he um, he left the band. He he wasn't into it anymore. He was messing with like drugs, like speed and just fucking drinking a lot and being a uh, a Lothario and, and he wasn't into the band anymore and he started missing rehearsals and the the junior version of the Beastie Boys was this band called The Young and the Useless and Ad-Rock was in that band with my friend Dave Skilkin rest in peace and and my friend Arthur Africano a bunch of other people Adam Tracy and he got they always say he got called up from the minor leagues <laughs> um, and he he replaces John and they make Cookie Puss as a joke, they have two songs, Cookie Puss, which is an ode, uh, an ode to Tom Carvel, and uh, what's the reggae song in the B-side, uh, Beastie Revolution. And Cookie Puss starts to get paid, played. And Beastie Revolution ends up on a commercial and for British Airways, un- uncleared, and they sue them and get some money. So now wow. they got some they got some money and they got a rap record that starts to get played on the mix shows. Because remember, there's not that many records. There's only a handful right. of records to play. So they, they, they get played. They're not really rapping on a record, but they're scratching and a beat and they're telling jokes and it's funny as hell. And so from there, I think they realized like, hey, this is kind of working. Like we can do all this other stuff. Maybe we should start fucking around with rap music. They got on Rick Rubin's radar with Cookie Puss, and he meets them, and he decides that, like, I'm going to kind of be your mentor. Hmm. Rick's only, like, a few years older. Yeah, I was um, about to say, he couldn't have been that much older. He wasn't much older at all. Rick is a DJ. He's DJ Double R. But he's also in a, in a punk band called Hoes, which are like a, uh, a flipper knockoff. So he starts to mold them as rappers. He puts out It's Yours with T Rock and and Jazzy, uh, T Rock and Jazzy J. Commentating, illustrating, description giving, adjective expert, analyzing some of the musical myths, seeking people of the universe. This is yours. It becomes a hit. It's on Arthur Baker's Party Time label. Rick is. Rick made the hardest record in New York at that time. Hmm. Though some say Jazzy J made it. 
I'm never clear who really produced it. I think it was probably both, kind of. Um, but he definitely was hanging out with Jazzy J a lot. Rick could DJ. He was a good DJ. And um, DJ Double R starts to mold the beasties right around the time he has linked up with Russell. Him and Russell meet because Russell loves It's Yours. And mm. they become a duo. And their first project is the Beastie Boys wow. and, in unison. So Larry Smith is getting phased out as producer for Run DMC. And Rick fills that chair. Um, so the Beasties are, they're like almost experiment group, but they really buy into it. And Ruck, I mean, Russell, they're enamored by Russell and Rick, but Russell, because he talks in hyperbole and this his whole shit was so much larger than life. Plus, he has Run DMC, Houdini in his back pocket. So he's mm -hmm. he's already super official, right? Like he's he's in there. He's got Curtis Blow and all that shit. I mean, you know, it's like, it's crazy. You know, it's almost unbelievable that they went from being a punk band to being able to like hang out Run DMC in a matter of like less than a year. Wow. So, so, you know, they, we all get swept up in the culture and like Cookie Puss is a joke record. Don't, don't get it fucked up. But like, you know, and a lot of their rapping revolved around humor, but they also really like me and all my friends who were caught up in a movement of hip hop. Um, it spoke to all of us. It was powerful. And the Beasties had their own take on their shit and it was steeped in humor just like um, their punk rock shit was. They were kind of a, you know, they called them joke core, like it was funny hardcore. So mm -hmm. now they were making rap that was kind of funny. It was always a little tongue in cheek, you know, but also yeah. um, skilled, so. And also respectful of, of where it came from too, which I think is always I important. think, yes, respectful where it came from, but topic wise, Maybe oh, yeah. disrespectful. <laughs> I mean, they're talking about shot, shooting people in the face, smoking angel dust, um, smoking crack, you know, shot homeboy in his fucking face, smoked a jumbo and watched Columbo or whatever the line is. Like, you know, I mean, they're, you know, talking about dusted, dusted. I got dusted. I mean, mm -hmm. they're talking about some fucking wild shit. They're probably talking about shit that's surpassing Run DMC in terms of reckless, <laughs> reckless lyrics. It's pretty mm -hmm. reckless shit, and that was part of the appeal. We'll get back into it in one second, but I need to take a quick moment and shout out our sponsor, DistroKid. Man, so many of my homies use DistroKid. It's a music distribution service that makes distribution fun and easy with unlimited uploads and artists keeping 100% of their royalties and earnings. A million plus artists rely on DistroKid to put their music on Spotify, Apple Music, YouTube, TikTok, Tidal, Instagram, and all the major streaming services. A million plus artists, and I swear I know at least 100 of them. And now DistroKid has an app. You can use the app to upload new releases, see your DistroKid bank, and get notified when you've earned royalties. You can even check your streaming stats live. The DistroKid app is now available on iOS. Go to the App Store and download it. DistroKid also has a new feature called Instant Share that allows you to easily share large files securely with collaborators, producers, booking agents, managers, playlist curators, and more. Basically, anybody that needs access to your music, there's an easy way to upload it and send them a link. Go to distrokid.com slash instant share, drag and drop your files to upload, and then you can copy and send your link right there. It's free to send one gigabyte of files. That's like 100 MP3s. Don't quote me on that. Go to distrokid.com slash open mic. That's distrokid.com slash open mic. O-P-E-N-M-I-K-E for 30% off your membership. So you were working for Rush Associated Labels. No, um, for, no, there was no. no Rush Associated. Rush Productions. Rush Productions. And then it was Rush Management. So what, what did that company do? They managed all the rap groups of note. Okay, so they, they did they like, manage everybody on Def Jam and other places. Yes, they they were the um, they were like the the brother sister arm of Def Jam on the management side, but hmm. they were maybe at that point bigger because they managed groups that weren't on Def Jam, including Run DMC and Houdini, who were arguably the one two punch in hip hop. They were the most important groups and the biggest groups out. So what were your duties there at Rush Productions? Like, what did you get hired to do? 
deliver fucking packages. So you just all around the city delivering recordings and materials and who knows what was in those mysterious <laughs> envelopes? Who knows? There's rumors that it was nefarious, nefarious product. I don't know. So yeah, and I'd run things back and forth with people. Russell lived on LaGuardia Place. I go to his house. Uh, all kinds of things, you know. And whatever Lior needed me to do, which is often get his lunch order and fuck it up. Um, <laughs> and and uh, kind of office mascot a little bit, crazy kid, you know. I was just fucking wild kid, always uh, always in the middle of some bullshit, fucking around. What type of people used to come in and out of the office at that time? Man, that place was a nerve center. It's where I met yeah. everyone in hip hop. During the day, think about that. Yeah. Not yeah. at night, daytime <laughs> hours. Because, you know, there's daytime Dante and then there's nighttime Dante. Oh, you might have to tell us the difference. Uh, daytime Dante isn't drunk. <laughs> that's probably a good idea. That's, that's, be that's, running around that's the city he might have been packages. stoned, but he wasn't <laughs> drunk. So that's, that's one. Two, um, I don't want to say I was couth, but more couth. So, mm. so a little more diplomatic. And um, I guess that's the difference. So, you know, daytime, daytime me and nighttime are different people. Um, so everyone, man, to where I met Red Alert, to where I met Chuck Chillout, to where I met Chuck D, Flavor Flav. I want to say I already knew LL before I worked there, to where I met Eric B and Rakim, to where I met Stetsasonic. I think I had met Houdini before. But they definitely came through the doors. Um, Dougie Fresh. I met Karis one outside of there. But, you know, the who's who of hip-hop. I met a lot of motherfuckers there. It's Jimmy Spicer, Spider D, UTFO, Hitman Howie T, I think. A whole bunch of characters came through those doors. Um, the original concept, on and on and on and on. So, and I remember, I couldn't understand that Chuck Chillout wasn't Chuck D because I had Chuck, I had Public Enemy's demo six months before it came out. And I couldn't believe that Chuck D voice wasn't as big as Chuck Chillout physically. Because yeah. <laughs> when I met Chuck D, he wasn't six foot six. And it right. didn't make sense to me. <laughs> he certainly has a tall I also met Nelson George voice. there, Faith Newman, and Carly. I don't think I met Monica Lynch there, but but a bunch of those kind of people too. Gary Harris, you know, uh, Carol Cooper, writers and others. You know, people mm -hmm. did other shit, worked at other labels, business people. So, you know, man, I, I built my Rolodex at Rush Productions. And so daytime Dante was building his Rolodex. Nighttime Dante was on, it was around the city hanging out. I'm really interested or curious about like, what spots did you go hang out at, at night at that time? Like, so there's the downtown spots. There's Nell's, mm -hmm. which is where Russell held court. So I'm obligated to pop into Nails. And that's mm -hmm. where I first saw a cell phone. Russell had the big-ass suitcase cell phone. <laughs> and I went there, and the Beast, he let us, I was just hanging with the Beast. He let the Beasties make phone calls. Wow. And pose with the phone. And, like, they were like, yeah. I remember clearly Ad-Rock being on the phone, these girls we know. It might have been Yauk, actually. It was Yauk, I think. And he was like, yeah, I'm on a cell phone. And they were like, <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah, come and check us out. We're at Nell's. Like, shit like that, you know? And I guess because I was running around the Beasties and I was like a, a skateboarding cool guy who knew everyone, I could get in free to every club. And that, and that really preps you for your A&R job. So mm. I, I, had, I had a lot of training for an A&R job. One, I grew up with like crazy-ass Puerto Ricans and black dudes, but mostly Puerto Ricans. And so um, I was never scared of people of color, never intimidated because I didn't know white people till I went to the smart kids school on the West Side. So they mm. sent me to accelerate the program. So all my friends were Puerto Rican um, initially. So so for me to be in a room and be the only white guy, I didn't even notice because that's just how I what I grew up. Never made you know, and I had a lot of the same cultural references. You know, I liked a lot of the same shit, um, particularly with Puerto Rican people. Like you, you know, was greatly affected by Puerto Rican culture growing up. So you know, man, I was never uncomfortable in that environment. And I never will be. So that, that was part of my pre-training. The fact that, because I knew every club downtown, since high school, I could get in every club for free. Whether mm. it was, dan when I was 16, I could go to any club in New York, any cool, like, hip club, and get in for free. So I had that in my back pocket. And I'm not nervous. So I started going up to, so I'm going to Nell's, The World, which 
which I, I uh, was down the block from where I grew up. And before I worked at Rush, I helped build the motherfucker. I did construction there. And my friend and me lived there temporarily for a minute, which is a whole nother story. We had a, we had a whole nightclub as our bedroom, basically. Mm. But, but that's some other crazy shit. And, and um, Latin Quarter is the most important club of all. So I had gone to the rooftop twice, I believe. And that was, and I got to Union Square. So Union Square is first pop in. And that shit is really dangerous. And there's a lot of Brooklyn Uptown shit popping off. And I went there a, a handful of times. And it was kind of scary. Hmm. Um, I can't lie. So the Latin Quarter opened. I never went to the first first version of it. It closed. Then Union Square opened. I went to Union Square. Reller and Clark Kent were the DJs. And then I, I was I don't want to say I was a regular there, but I went. And then um, I got the gig um, doing shit. People were like, yo, I saw Dante in a BMW with Jam Master J. Like on, <laughs> on 8th Street, you know? Like I'm like, I'm, I'm starting to kind of be somebody. Um, so I go to Latin Quarters and I finessed myself on the guest list. Oh, that's a paradise. I met Paradise Gray and Lamumba Carson at Def Jam as well. And they ran it, the LQ, and they started putting me on the guest list. And I started going. And I, I, I met Red Alert earlier at Def Jam at, at Rush. And um, Red called me up to the DJ booth. Um, I want to say... Because he thought I, I was cool enough to hang on VIP. But in actuality, I think it's because he thought I might get killed hanging out in the crowd <laughs> at Latin Quarter. And he was throwing me a life preserver. So, so, so I start going, hanging out upstairs. And, and I bring him records. Friday's record day. Test pressings come Thursday and Friday. I gave him the test press of Rebel Without a Pause. Um, okay, wow. So which, which will get you favor with the DJ, right? Yeah. Um, Hank and them knew I went out a lot, and they were like, yo, go run these around. And I gave them to a bunch of people, which was cool. To, to give someone a test press of that magnitude, all of a sudden your juice card elevates. So I have a little bit of juice. I have two, two nickels to rub together. Um, I'm hanging out at the Latin Quarter. I, I have no, ju no discernible jewelry. No one's really <laughs> checking for my swatch, so no one's trying to rob me. And, and I, I meet Search. And Dave Funk and Klein, the, the other white people who might, oh, Pete Nice, who might frequent the Latin Quarter during this time period. Search was the only stalwart at that point that I remember, other than myself, who was Caucasian. And me and Search become friends. I, I really am fascinated by the music I'm hearing at the Latin Quarter. And there's a direct correlation between what Red Alert plays at the Latin Quarter and what he plays on his mix show the next day. So... Mm -hmm what records work in a quarter go on the mix show. So you have an instantaneous litmus test of a record there. And this is not lost on me. So I start telling Lior and particularly Russell, because Lior didn't listen that much, who, who I think are the next guys. And, and I'm right a couple of times. And him and Andre Harrell, rest in peace. I love you, Andre. You're always so kind to me. Andre Harrell, who I met with, Ad, with Adam Yelk. Um, I should, I'll backtrack a little. Andre is one of the people who gave me hope to work in the music industry. Hmm. When I met him, he was Dr. Jekyll, right? From Jekyll and Hyde. Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, yeah. Well, if you do not know a man, oh, baby doll, you sure can play the game. Well, we're sitting in the limousine right outside. Oh, that's right. It's Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. And they had AMPM out, and I used to love the shark shark who swim in the ocean. I still love that record. So we hunt, we met Andre in the Palladium. Andre used to wear a suit, like a tie, and he was like an educator rapper. That was their shtick. And, and we hung out, and Andre was really cool, and he liked Yalk a lot. He was funny. And we went to Nell's, and he was like, so what you do, homeboy? And I was like, I wait tables. He's like, not for long. Hmm. And I was like, what? He's like, yeah, don't worry about that. Like, I got my eye on you, young, young blood or something. And, and he became my friend. Like, Andre was my man. So I'm a messenger. And I'm hanging out with Andre and Russell sometimes. And Jam Master Jay, who's my man. And they're all asking me what records are popping. Jay, see, Andre was smart. He started getting info from me. And, and he, and so did Russell. But Andre was the first person who really knew I knew. Him and his dude, Jimmy Jenkins, who works with the Hughes Brothers now. Jimmy, Jimmy Love, he's a great guy. And um, they, start, they start knowing I know something. 
Mm-hmm. And, and I would go to Nell's and hang out with them. And they might buy me some French fries because I couldn't afford to eat there yet. And, um, <laughs> and, and I'm hanging out with them and they're asking me about records. What's hot in the street? And I'm like, I'm a 21-year-old, maybe 21, 22-year-old white kid from downtown. And I'm telling these guys who are really important in the culture what records is popping because they can't go to Latin Quarter. Right, mm. Russell can't go because they're too quarter. big. Just yeah, too much yeah, attention. Just too shit's too buck wild. That's, mm. that's not for they can't be in there, and they don't want to be in there. They're aspirational already, you know. Right, uh, right. Latin Quarter is not aspirational. That's mm. downwardly mobile. So, so um, in the Latin Quarter, basically, no one from Def Jam's in there. I start telling them about Boogie Down Productions. Bro, and I want you all to understand the lyrics. So just chill and listen very closely. <laughs> it's called Beat. And ultra magnetic. If you believe in yourself, you know I want everybody throw one hand in there. You know what I want y'all to do? We out here nothing. You know what I want y'all to do? I want y'all to hype shit up. I want y'all to say, And in these groups that they don't know about. Um, now, are and, people performing in Latin Quarter? Or is yo, people DJs? perform every week in Latin Quarter. Not okay. not every single weekend there's a show. So you're every seeing, weekend. you're seeing, I've seen everybody. I've seen BDP, I've seen Just Dice, I've seen MC Light's first show, I've seen the audio wow. too. I've seen Stetsasonic with the drums on the dance floor. I saw, I saw, um, shit, I saw MC Hammer play there when it was on the downside. I saw Masters of Ceremony, I saw Dana Dane, I saw Biz, I saw um, Dougie Fresh. Um, I saw Public Enemy and Melly Mel heckle him. I seen mm. Karis One destroy Melly Mel and alter his entire career there. So yeah, really? I, saw, I saw Schoolie D there and he incited violence when PSK came on. So, wow. so you know, and there was records that incited violence. Stetsonic O Brooklyn, South Bronx by BDP, mm-hmm. um, PSK by Schoolie D. These records would, Eric B and Rakim, Eric B is president, Someone might get robbed to those records and beat the fuck up when them records came on, right? Yeah. They were so powerful, shit just jumped off. And, and you know, so I'm seeing all these groups, and I'm enamored. Like, I, you know, I, I look back at now, and I, I say, I was at the Birdland of hip-hop, right? Hmm. This is Birdland. And I'm seeing the changing of the guard. And the it's next all sh- wave. Right, the, the start of the golden era. I mean, Big Daddy Kane, Roxanne Shante. I met Kane... I knew about Kane because he was legendary for battling dudes, but he was Shantae's, and I don't know Kane well, um, but he was Shantae's DJ when I first seen him. Hmm. Man, I seen, you know, all, all the heavy hitters, and it was amazing. It was, you know, and I'm telling Russell and, and them about them, and they know some of them, and I remember telling them about Big Daddy Kane, and they were like, yo, he's with Ty and them, and we're doing their deal at Warner Brothers, so we can't go and, and steal him. Because he didn't make, he hadn't made a record yet. I don't mm-hmm. think um, I don't think Funky was out yet, like the hit, him and Biz record. Um, but there was tapes of it, and that's the other thing. Oh yeah, shout out to Keo, my man Blake. He was actually a stalwart at the quarter, and he was another white dude. He had gold fronts and an Oshkosh suit. Okay, and he was running with wild Brooklyn dudes. Um, All right, he's not serious. I, but he wasn't a tough dude, which was crazy. I knew him from Grav. He, he wasn't a sucker, but. He was just all about the culture. He was so enthused. You know, man, that was it. That was that was what it was all about. And he had and tapes. Keo, he had tapes, but I don't think I got tapes from him. I got tapes from my, this kid Demo who ran with Ultra and other people. But um, he did hit me to Kane, a hundred percent. He told me about Kane, and I knew Biz. I already knew Biz. And Search used to perform there too. And Search used to used to rock it. I gotta I gotta give him his props where, he, where they're due. Um, so, you know, it was, um, it was an interesting thing. So I'm telling these cats about all that. And, and then these bands, um, the quarters get super violent shows start to get booked downtown. And these, these parties called the candy bar parties start popping up. And it was first, I think it was hundred thousand dollar bar. Then it was payday, but I could have it. My order could be backwards. And they started booking the Latin quarter bands, but downtown in a safer environment, hotel, mm-hmm. Amazon, and then later at Irving Plaza. So they start booking, I don't want to say the exact same bands, but maybe the bands that come a little after them. 
So it's not like Kane was rocking there or Biz, but when Native Tongues come out, they all rock mm. there. And these bands start playing there too. And LL and Run DMC already full blown. Beastie Boys are already like full blown. Like these guys are big, right? Oh, I saw Salt and Pepper. They used to turn it out too and Kid and Play. And so some of these bands start getting booked downtown. I think Kid and Play did. And then, and then the next iteration, the Native Tongues, right? And maybe some other of those quarters groups, Just Dice, I think, and, and the guys who are a little bit later, and they all start rocking. So now I could see these groups in a sexier environment that got more girls. Because mm-hmm. I wasn't getting no play at the Latin quarters. Just, <laughs> I'm, not a dope, I'm not a dope boy. And I don't got my Louis, I don't got a Dapper Dan joint on. Right, right. You know, I'm, I'm wearing a Fila bucket hat and. You got Swatch, yeah. They're not, yeah, they're Swatch, not you know what I mean? I'm not, <laughs> I'm not that hot yet. Though, though, I did, I did actually have a couple of little shorties. Um, <laughs> I used to hang out with Paz K. That was my man. And, and Pooh by a little bit and D-Nice. And Paz K used to, he used to always call me James Dean. He'd be like, yo, James Dean. Yo, she's checking you out. And we used to go downtown. I started taking these dudes downtown to parties the same time well earlier in my life i'd also i used to um before i was fully immersed in hip-hop i would also go to paradise garage so i also knew kind of that world a little bit and knew that music so you know and i would dabble and jump up in a freestyle club too like 1018 because that's where all the bad puerto rican mommies are and you know i could go to all those clubs for free pretty much so you know me and me and Paz and and uh, or my man demo or whoever we might just roll downtown after the quarters or search and go to some shit that was more sexy. And and I had carte blanche and, and that used to like impress cats. So, you know, man, I was in the middle of, I was living, I was living the life, so they say. And look, I had a railroad apartment on 80th Street between York and First, the least sexy, York and East End, the least sexy area in all of New York. I did, you know, I had like a bullshit expense account I could write off a cab or two, but I took the train home at four in the morning most nights. And it was a lot of fun, man. I was... It was a lot of fun um, working there. And, and then eventually I got more responsibility. Me and Lior, just, we, we didn't coexist well. And I ended up going to work very briefly for Carol Lewis at, at Norby Walters at the agency, which became, became later William Morris bought it. And while I'm working there, all the rappers are coming in there too because she's booking them all. Daddy-O, who's my man, hips me to the fact that Tommy Boy's hiring an A&R guy. And I was like, yo, that, he was like, yo, you'd be really good for the job. They... They asked me if I wanted it, but I'm in the band and I got things to do. But I, I told them they should holler at you. And that's how I ended up meeting Mon- sitting with Monica Lynch and eventually getting a job at, at Tommy Boy. So I got to say thanks to Daddy-O for that that hookup. And I always call Daddy-O. That's Big Pops. That's that's my father. He He's the big bro. He completely blessed me and hooked me up. Great dude. Shout out to Daddy-O. Shout out to Stetson Sonic. Uh, and, uh, and by the way, Stetson Sonic were fantastic. Shout out to Prince Paul, of course. Prince Paul, who who was a genius back then, and little did did anyone know, or did I know when I first met him, and he said about no words that he would become an, a very important part of my in my life post uh, his initial foray in Stetsasani. I read a story about when you tried to change how you dressed while you were working at Rush. Oh yeah, yeah. I tried how did that to. Go? Um, I tried to get fly. <laughs> I tried to be fly. I was like. You know, I'm gonna be fly. I was like, Andre Harrell's fly, and and I um I threw on some Benetton slacks, and I think I had a pair of Doc Martens on, like the shoes, not the boots. Mm. Um, and and don't get it fucked up. Doc Martens, um, black people ain't wear Doc Martens until like until Jodeci wore them shits in the video, <laughs> like <laughs> dead ass. Just be like, dudes would straight up be like, why are you wearing the Herman Munster boots? <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, man, shits is ill. Like, yeah, all right. So, because, you know, funny. he was wearing, um, you wore wallabies, right? That's what you wore, wallies or Clarks, desert boots. So I might add on desert boots or wallies and some Benetton slacks. And I had like a, a eyes out or a polo on with a briefcase. And I had shit in the briefcase. I had like a pencil, a bagel maybe, and like <laughs> um, an envelope I had delivered. And I, I had taken like a tour itinerary. Just so I could front, look at the Run DMC, look at the Run DMC tour or some shit, right? So that was in my briefcase, and I, and my briefcase was cheap ass bullshit briefcase, and and Russell seen me, and he screamed on me. Yeah, 
Yo, he screamed at me. He's like, don't ever dress like that. The fuck are you out of your fucking mind? <laughs> he was like, look at me. I was like, yeah. He's like, I just like a fucking bum. That's why they think I know everything and they pay me fucking money. He's mm. like, you can't be one of them. You got to be who you are. That shit is dumb as fuck. He's like, I'm telling you, don't ever dress like that again in the office. I swear to God. And I, I was like scolded for dressing nice. So, <laughs> so I went back to wearing my Ewings and, and a pair of Levi's and a baseball hat. Nice. Uh, tell me just as much as you, you know, as you can about, you say you and Lior didn't coexist well. What was that relationship like when you were working for him? He's a very, he was very volatile and abusive. Um, and mm. I love him. He's my friend. And, um, you know, he, he um, you know, I just, it wore off. I just, it wasn't, it wasn't, fuck, it wasn't flowing right with me. And I would stand up to him and, yo, he's important. I'm not. And it just didn't, it wasn't working right. I think he threw an eraser at me because I used to have to do his tour board and he called me eight names I, and I yelled back at him and, and that was that. He was like, yo, you can't work over here anymore. I'm going to put you over here. And that's what happened. While you're at Rush Productions, um, you did end up working a little bit with Def Jam artists. Um, yeah. You worked with Public Enemy for a Well, I don't want to say I worked with Public Enemy. I was around Public Enemy. I had, I had the, the old club that I had lived in and helped build the world on the opening night. Public Enemy and Davey DMX are playing and I get tapped on the shoulder to, to basically stage manage and road manage, produce the event. Hmm. And I was probably in over my head, but I was like, yeah, come on. So I took the bands over there. And David DMX's turntables were skipping on stage. He had to perform in the balcony. That's where the DJ booth was. He was pissed. Public Enemy, smart enough to just put Terminator X in the balcony. They don't care. But the sound is shitty. I'm arguing with everybody who runs the place. The guy who owned the place, Frank Rocchio, an infamous asshole who I once had to, he stiffed me for a bunch of construction work. I literally, me and my man had to go to his house and walk him to the bank to get paid. So there was no love loss between us because I, I guess I failed to mention um, I had a hammer and we had a pit bull that was ready to eat him alive. So he paid us like 500 bucks. So there was no love loss. I was like, yo, Frank, the fucking sound's all fucked up. Your sound man sucks. Turntables are jumping. And he was like, go hang some sheetrock, you jerk off. And me and Frank <laughs> got into it. So the show goes off. David DMX is mad. I get hammered after it finally works out. I'm fucking wasted. And I'm backstage in the dressing room. They have these pane glass windows on like these doors, you know, the glass panes and like mm -hmm. a, a door. And DMC with his Green Lantern Old English ring, he has a ring that's an Old English pen cap, punches a glass, pane glass. And I'm like, I could do that shit. He's like, whatever. So... I pop one with my bullshit ring and I don't cut my hand. And he's like, oh, you want to fuck with the with Captain Waxer and the Green Lantern? And he pops another one. I was like, that ain't shit. And I popped another one and bong, I broke my hand. I cut Damn. my hand open. So I'm bleeding profusely. I'm, I'm <laughs> drunk. I, I, this is wrap a hell of a, night. I wrap a napkin around my shit. DMC pours old English over my hand. It's going to anesthetize it. He's anesthetizing my wound. <laughs> with malt liquor. <laughs> with malt liquor. But, but he doesn't offer to drive me to the hospital. They're just laughing at me. And I, um, I stumble out of there. I see I got a bloody napkin around my hand. And, and um, I see my man. I see Russell. And he's like, yo, you're a, you're like, you're a pile. Look at you. And he's, mm. like, he's like, what the fuck? I was like, yo, I got to go to the doctor and get stitches. And he's I got to go to the emergency room. So he gave me, took pity on me, gave me like 20 bucks or something. And I went to Beth Israel and I got stitches. I still have a scar on my finger to this day. I got seven stitches there. <laughs> and DMC has no recollection of the story. <laughs> so, because I asked him and he was like, I have no idea what you're talking about, D. Um, and D, so D is funny. my man. I love him. Um, and David DMX is there as well. I think he gave me the napkin. He doesn't remember it either. So it was pretty uneventful to them it was a lot to me <laughs> so um that was like one of the things i had to do so that would that may fall into the context of working with public enemy but, <laughs> but i i passed a record off for hank 
um, to Red Alert. I don't know if that comes into the context either, but that's about the extent of my working with Public Enemy. I will say, though, that I loved Public Enemy, and mm-hmm. I had their, their tape a solid six months before it came out and listened to it everywhere I went. And, oh, I did do one other thing for them. We got the advances of, I got the, we got samples made of public enemy sweatshirts and t-shirts. Mm. And um, I grew up with Kadeem Hardison, who was on a, a different, different world. world. But he was on, he was in the Spike movie. And I'd seen him a few days, like a week earlier, his mom, Beth Ann, like, it's like my second mom. I've known him since I was young. She, she took us to see fucking Parliament. I, I, it's literally in seventh grade. So Beth Ann is like, she's Auntie Beth Ann. That's, that's family. And I seen him and he was like, oh, yeah. I was like, I work with this and the other. He's telling me how much he loved Public Enemy. And I said, yo, man, um, you know, give me, give me your math. And he was about to leave. I called him and he gave me the address. to. They're filming in Atlanta. He gave me the address where he, he was staying. And I sent him the Public Enemy sweatshirt and he wore it in the fucking movie. That's so sick. And the other thing I did was there's a famous skateboarder named Nadas Kopis, and he loved Public Enemy. He's like the first skateboarder, like who was famous to acknowledge his love of hip hop. He's like a blonde haired kid from Santa Monica, but like one of the greatest, the, one of the guys who invented street skating, which makes sense that he would like hip hop because they kind of go hand in hand. And I sent him, I sent him the Public Enemy shirt as well. I think I gave it to Glenn Friedman, maybe, who helped me send it to him. Well, and, and if Glenn hears this, I'm sure he'll take all the credit for it. Um, <laughs> but, but that's how it got to Nottis, and he wore that shit on cover of Thrasher magazine. Sick. And Public Enemy, I think because of Nottis Copus, always had it, and the music, of course, but he's one of the reasons that a million skate, white skateboarders in America tuned into Public Enemy. Hmm. You know what's funny? When I think about you know, your career and the more I've gotten to know about it, like that, that's almost emblematic of the whole thing. It's like, you know, you are behind the scenes, but in a lot of ways, like responsible for making sure that the iconic art gets in the right place so that it gets exposed to the people. I I mean, I I would say that's true. And and it's largely due to um, my eclectic background. The fact that I was a child of cultural exchange. I saw cultural exchange all around me most of my life and was really inspired by, by what the first thing I ever did that was truly cool, involving myself in subcultures that evolved into this cultural exchange. So I always saw a connection between rap music and punk rock, uh, skateboarding and hip hop and, and things like that, graffiti and you know punk rock and, and hip hop. I always saw how they intersected. Rebel culture recognizes rebel culture, and I've been lucky to be a part of several rebel cultures. So, you know, we're, we're going to wrap this up, but as you are leaving Rush and Lior and and that kind of that system, the system that you responded to when you first, first see Run DMC, like this is what really activates you when you end up working alongside that. Now you're leaving and, and you end up at Tommy Boy. Yeah. Now what I'm curious about as we end this is... What was the future that you saw for yourself? Like, what is it you wanted to ultimately I wanted do? to be an A&R guy. They had A&R people at Def Jam. Faith was working there. But I think she was more on the publishing side, if I'm not mistaken, at that point. Mr. Bill, Stephanie, and some others, George Solmers. And I wanted to be an A&R person at Def Jam Records. Deadass. And Bill mm-hmm. Stephanie had alluded to it, as did Russell. But it never happened. And I, if I had stayed at Def Jam, just think what would have happened. Hmm. Um, so, but I didn't, and that wasn't meant to be. And you know what? I have this old theory, and, and the Beastie Boys relate to this. When you're right in front of somebody, they can't see your genius. Hmm. So the Beastie Boys, I never produced the Beastie Boys record. I, I never did a remix of the Beastie Boys, right? Because I'm right in front of them, so they might not have seen my genius that that maybe, and not genius, but you know, my talent that yeah. that that Everlast saw or even Cypress Hill saw or um, bands like Korn saw or even Grand Poobah. Like they didn't see it because you're so available. So, you know, right. I think availability will have people overlook your talent sometimes. You know, they Absolutely. don't- Absolutely. I, you know, I think people always kind of, 
underestimate the people who they came with, and they always right. think it's over there somewhere. You know, or, what I'm or they give them the, or they make their their main man the the manager, and he shouldn't be. I guess that also happens. As <laughs> you know, well. the, my cousin's <laughs> my cousin's my producer now, whatever it is. But you know, yeah. um, and and I look back on the Def Jam days, um, on that that early stuff, I, I feel um, really happy to have been around all of that, but. But I also feel um, glad that I jumped ship and that mm. I, I went my own way. Because, look, I, the Beasties, I love them, and, and this is no knocking them. But there was a lot of people around them who wasn't around in the beginning. And, like, look, they had a girl in the band, Kate. I love Kate. And she got, she got cut by Rick. And, and they talk about it in the book. So I'm not airing any dirty laundry. Um, but there was... There was a vibe that had, had altered. And now there was all these people, and, and I'm not going to point fingers, but there was a bunch of sycophants around them. I didn't want to be part of that. I didn't need to eat. I wasn't trying to eat off the Beastie Boys like that. Um, I wanted to forge my own path. And part of that was not hanging out with them anymore, necessarily, and going to places like the Latin Quarter or the Red Parrot or even the Skate Key or Zodiac or the Castle, all these those places in the Bronx and crazy spots. Um, and... And being around all of this stuff, um, not just staying below 14th Street and and jumping ship. And that is why I got to plug in and do shit. If I had stayed in that one place, I can't say that would have happened. So, you know, sometimes you got to, you know, it's like you got to take your, your show on the road to get your props. So I took my show on the road and it was the smart thing to do. And, and look, there's a lot of people hung on to Def Jam too long. And I'm not going to name names, but hung around there. And they never had a career past Def Jam because they hung around Def Jam. And, and um, I wasn't conscious of that. But I'm also, I've never been scared to go my own way. And I'll go my own way. And maybe I'm right, maybe I'm wrong. But um, I'm not scared to go my own way. And, and that was like me getting into punk rock or other things. Like, you know, some people are scared to go their own way. I'm not scared to do that. Well, you know, I think that's a great place to leave it. I think ultimately it's really great that you went your own way, if anything, just because all of the artists that you end up signing at Tommy Boy, signing at Elektra, um, you know, if you find all these artists and you bring them all to Def Jam, who knows who gets signed, who doesn't, what kind of bottlenecks, you know, like you, you, you never know. So I think it's good that you got a chance to go to another platform. Imagine brand newbie, though, on Def Jam. I mean, I think that would have been amazing, but you know, do they sign Dell? Do they? You know what I'm saying? Nope. Like, they wouldn't they have sign signed Dell. They might have signed leaders of the new school. They wouldn't have signed Dell. I don't think they would have signed Pete Rock. They had Method Man, and apparently they did try to sign Old Dirty. So mm -hmm. they they and they did they they did make overtures to sign KMD, but but um, not serious ones. So yeah, so I, I think you know for that thought alone, I think it's it, it's great. Um, that you were able to forge your own path because uh, I think we're able to get more music, you know what I'm saying, because of that. Um, but we'll leave it there for now and we'll pick up with an interview we taped already. <laughs>